Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 31st. I'm Kevin Farrell, in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the State Health Department updates the medical marijuana program as dispensaries prepare to open. Then a group of bikers in New Orleans reflect on the impacts of incarceration as they cycled 55 miles towards the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Plus the educational lessons that can be learned from the latest Nations Report Card. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Officials regulating the state's new medical marijuana program say product could be in dispensaries by the beginning of the new year. According to the Mississippi Department of Health, 47 cultivators, 8 processors, and 138 medical marijuana dispensaries have been given provisional licenses to operate in the state. Chris Jones, director of the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Program, says this period allows all involved parties to work out problems before full licensure. During the provisional period, we also work with the businesses because we have many businesses that may be in different phases of construction. And so while they're constructing, then they will remain in a provisional licensure period until we can see that actual physical structure that will ultimately be where they either cultivate or process dependent upon the type of license that they have. One of the things that we need to note is there's a lot of opportunity right now for transporters and for waste disposal entities. The ones that we have provisional, provisionally licensed at this point are really those businesses that want to be vertically integrated. So there's opportunity for transporters and for waste disposal entities to really get into this space to do business so that the program can develop even further and that the medication can ultimately get to the dispensaries and then available to the patients. So I think as we move through these issues, we are ironing out issues every day as we go through this process. We are very careful to look at where we are in metric, which is our state seed to sale system. And that gives us an an ability to even monitor and look at compliance remotely um, because we can see what those businesses are doing through that system. And that helps us gauge with data on when we have problems or issues that we may need to look further into on site. Some cultivators have product ready for the next phase of production, and that includes lab testing. Jones says there are a number of rigorous processes labs must complete. 
We anticipate that it will be towards the end of the year, first first part of next year, and that's really because um, the the testing facilities need time to get stood up completely. They they have to validate their measures. They have to make sure that they can test everything as it's required. Um, so anything that's grown or processed still has to be tested in its final format before it goes to retail at the dispensary. The labs, like we said, are provisionally licensed right now. That gives them the opportunity to get their test validation methods in place to make sure they can test accurately. They are in the process of doing that. One is a little bit further than the other just because of the timing of their applications and their startup. Um, so we are working with them to um, review that validation as quickly as we can and turn it around back to them so that we can remove any bottlenecks. Standing up a lab is a very time-consuming process, whether it's for this or any other type of clinical testing that might occur. And since it is so important that testing be accurate and be available, we really do want the lab to spend as much time as they need to validate their measures and make sure that they can test the product to put a safe product out. Mississippians overwhelmingly voted for the sale of medical marijuana in the state last November. Health officials say 406 patients have been approved to receive the product. Jones believe that number will increase as products make it to dispensaries. We've worked actually with the Patients Alliance and several of the other associations associated with the industry. And part of that initial message was that while we are in the startup period, patients really did not need to be in an overwhelming hurry um, to get their application in because there is by statute a 60-day window. So when they get certified by a practitioner, they have to apply within that 60-day window. So really, we think that we do have a number of patients and, and interested um, potential patients who are waiting until we're a little bit closer to the finish line and that there is product available on those retail shelves at, at the dispensary. There are currently 117 health practitioners certified to prescribe medical cannabis. Coming up, a group of bikers in New Orleans reflect on the impacts of incarceration as they cycled 55 miles toward the Louisiana State Penitentiary. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. Once a year, an advocacy group organizes a bike ride from New Orleans towards Angola Prison to highlight the 170-mile journey that families take to visit loved ones incarcerated there. Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. The Gulf States newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick pedaled along, talking to cyclists and learning more about the ride and who it supports. It's around 7 a.m. on a Saturday. Bikers are gathering in preparation for the NOLA to Angola ride, in some cases trading four wheels for two. They're gathered in front of a house, 
home of the first 72 plus, a nonprofit named for the most critical hours for someone released from incarceration. And today, volunteers have taken over the front lawn to check us in. Yeah, hey, Bobby. Elise Fuchs has got me covered. Um, we also have a waiver. After check-in, there's a press conference to learn more about this ride. The money that everyone has raised, which at this point is more than $40,000. Even with a car, the journey to Angola is long and costly. In previous years, NOLA to Angola riders raised funds for a program that provides free bus rides to the prison. But this year, the funds are going to help Pastor Tyrone Smith and his team at First 72 fight recidivism. Nobody come out of prison don't want to go back to prison. But when you can't get some of the wraparound services like um, clothing, um, an ID, a place to stay, your chances of going back to prison are great. So this money would help a lot of guys um, get that first month rent and that deposit and help them to get them a place to stay. Everyone's excited to get going. Okay, we're rolling out. Before the pandemic, bikers rode all the way to the prison. It took three days and they camped along the way. But for the first group ride in two years, organizers thought best to cap the distance at 55 miles. And we're on the levee. Although we're all biking together here, you can be alone with your thoughts. It's really pretty. It feels really like wide and open and safe. Last night, someone said to me, it's kind of the exact opposite for the folks that we're riding for today. At the first stop, about 15 miles in, rider Carly Cruley says that she'd recently recovered from a bike accident but she still wanted to ride in honor of the formerly incarcerated people in her family. And I was being nervous I'd be left behind or forgotten, but connecting that to how people who are in prison probably feel because of the way our society works. It's sad. I started crying, that I'm is for sorry. sure. No, it's okay. It was nice. The, the wind on my face wiped them away. But yeah, I think it was really emotional for me. Cruley and some other riders hop into a van and head back to New Orleans. Then the rest of us are off to lunch, another 15 miles away. Okay, so now we're starting to bike through the industrial corridor. You know, you just see clouds of chemical smoke billowing into the beautiful blue sky. We stop at a field a little more than halfway through our journey. Everett Offray, who has been out of Angola for 10 months, talks to writers about his experience. Because I spent 27 and a half years in hell. But inside of prison, I learned some things. And I was blessed to be able to help guys inside of prison to get out of prison. He thanks writers for thinking of the people behind bars. We appreciate it. Because now we're able to tell the brothers that, man, look. Yeah, they got people that's fighting for you. Because it's, it's, it's visible. People understand that incarceration is not the, that's not the solution. After lunch, it's another 25 miles to the last stop. And for that last 10 of it, there are no bike lanes. Cars are whizzing by and we're on the shoulder. It's wide, but scattered with gravel and other debris. Ending the last stop, looking forward to it. My backpack is getting really, really heavy. Uh, yeah, almost at 55 miles. 
At the last stop in St. James Parish, there's a peace among the group. Some people jump into a swamp to cool off. Others are resting their legs, and it's time to go. The last few riders pull in, and Elise Fuchs rounds us up and tells us to get on the bus that's waiting for us. But unlike so many of the incarcerated people that the bikers rode for, we're headed home. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Bobby Jean Mizick. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, the educational lessons that can be learned from the latest Nations Report Card. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-THE-NUMBER-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell. Data from the recently released Nations Report Card shows that Mississippi experienced a record decline in educational progress. The state had experienced the highest growth in the nation in the 2019 report, but the pandemic disrupted classroom learning in the years that followed. Fred Jones is a senior director of policy and advocacy at the Southern Educational Foundation. He breaks down the results with MPB's Kobe Vance. Despite there's being progress or modest progress, depending on the state, uh, historically, we've seen an increase in in scores over the years or uh, at least things being flatlined. Unfortunately, we've seen a most of the states uh, have a decrease in their scores. Uh, Most of our region um, have a decrease in in their scores. And I really um, have to chalk this up to us having one of the worst pandemics in um, our nation's history or across the globe. Um, and so my main takeaway is is this is unfortunate, um, but I would say let's not ignore the progress historically uh, many of our states have had in the past, and Mississippi being one of them. In fact, during the last uh, test results, Mississippi was one of two states in the South that made major gains. And so... I think what we have to do is just understand what this moment means uh, over the context of looking at this from the from a long-term perspective and make sure that we return to the efforts that took place before the pandemic to ensure that we can hopefully continue to make progress going forward. Wanted to look at the pandemic as a whole and seeing these test results. What do you think this can mean for this generation of children in these, that are taking place in these results? Do you think they're going to be set back from people that came before them? I mean, there's a possibility of that, um, but children like um, are, are very resilient. It's not up to the children. It's up to the students or it's up to the teachers and the adults and the system itself to prepare our young people to enter the workforce and go on to college. And so... There is a, a pathway, a clear pathway for students to make up um, the loss of instructional time, depending on how our systems can change. And so we can certainly scale and tutor and 
use after school and summer um, and other mechanisms that we know work. Um, but I wouldn't say this is a, I wouldn't say that the, this generation is lost. What this means is our school system has to change and transform to meet their needs. And so um, we just have to be adept to that as, as, as adults and systems leaders and policy leaders just to ensure that we're developing a system that allows them to excel despite um, what has happened throughout this pandemic. Looking back to the scores here in Mississippi, we were able to maintain pretty close to our scores from 2019 in the fourth grade reading category. But in all other categories, we fell pretty along the national average when it comes to the decline that we've seen across the nation. Um, and that's across fourth grade and eighth grade math and in eighth grade reading. I want to get your thoughts. Um, the Southeast as a whole seemed to be able to maintain pretty well uh, when it came to test scores. Do you think that is good news or do you think that's just um, a, a bright spot in a bleak situation? I, I, have, a, I have a different take uh, than those two options. What I think has happened in Mississippi especially is there's been a historic focus on the science of learning and literacy over the last 12 to 15 years. And I think this is bearing fruit on the NAEP results, given the fact that despite the pandemic, the, the reading scores stayed roughly the same. Unfortunately, the math scores fell, and that is pretty emblematic of what's happened across the South and uh, throughout the nation. Unfortunately, if we're looking at these scores in the aggregate, um, it doesn't actually tell the truth. You have to break this down by, by subgroups. What we see in Mississippi and what we see across the nation is that white students in general have performed just about on par with the last time the NAEP results have taken place. And so that's especially the case in, in reading and, and slightly, there was a slight decline in math. However, for um, black students and Hispanic students, the gaps are very, very um, are wide. And so they're definitely much lower. In many cases, it's 20 or even 30 points uh, lower than their white peers. And so I say that this is a story of results that are just not the same if 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 we um if we're looking at this based off of off of race um there's just been a different experience in school um depending on someone's race unfortunately and so that's the case that's been the case in mississippi it's been the, it's been the case in a number of states throughout the south and so we can't just look at this in the aggregate we have to break down what is happening in our school system and the results um, based on socioeconomic status, based off of race, so we can know how to target resources effectively and also learn what's working and what's not. So I guess that's what I would just say. Like this, this pandemic is, is, has not impacted our families and our students equally. Um, it's, been very, it's been very different, unfortunately. From a policy perspective, what do you think states have to do to be able to recoup this learning loss? Yeah, one thing, I, I, or a couple things I would say. One, I think we need to continue to invest in early childhood education. Um, this is for infants, toddlers, and, um, and pre-K students to ensure that they have accessible and high-quality early learning environments. 
I would say, two, there has to be a focus on increasing funding for the state's core funding formula. We know that money and investments work, especially if you targeted them in research-based ways, um, such as on classroom instruction or teacher quality. And I think the last thing that I would bring up is incredibly important that we still focus on mental health. There's been a lot of orphans that came out of the pandemic. Um, people are dealing with dire uh, mental health concerns. And so it's important that the legislature uh, in Mississippi and across the country really focus on wraparound services and whole child supports so we can deal with the, both the academic and non-academic needs of students. I would say those would be the my three biggest um, suggestions for the legislature to consider from a policy perspective. Another thing that we've been that has been in the news ever since we started the pandemic has been distance learning. Do you think that the tools that have been grown from the pandemic when it comes to ensuring that children have access to education materials outside of their classrooms, do you think that's something that's going to be sticking around after seeing these NAEP scores, considering that we saw these declines despite students still um, being able to attend class via Zoom or other uh, functions? Yeah, well, I, I think having access to high-quality broadband is a civil rights issue. Students need them. Families need them. Unfortunately, um, the people who don't have access to remote instructions or remote learning oftentimes are in, are in rural locations or um, families who are, who are low income. I do think that the state should continue to invest and being able to provide high-quality broadband, accessible broadband, um, and, and the hardware necessary for anytime, anywhere learning. And so I think there's a couple things to think about. Uh, one, unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see various versions of pandemics or natural disasters that may keep kids out of the physical school building of schools. And I think, secondly, um, even if you are able to be in the school building and have in-person instruction, not all of the materials or courses or even resources are available in your school building. I think um, as a nation, we have to continue to be able to provide opportunities for kids to learn in, an high, in a high-quality way. And so that includes being able to double down on the infrastructure that's necessary um, for broadband and for digital learning. Um, so I would hope that um, that investment could continue and, and improve. It wasn't perfect, right? But uh, some learning is better than, than no learning. And I think we can't just pivot back to the way we've always done schools just because we know even in those instances, it wasn't the most optimal environment. We have to improve on what it will take to transform our school system for the better for all students and being able to have an opportunity to have universal access to instruction through uh, technology is a is a great way to to um, to be able to address every student's needs. Fred Jones is senior director for policy and advocacy at the Southern Education Foundation. Fred, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. It was um, I look I look forward to this opportunity and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.